0: Before I begin today's podcast, I would like to recommend and play a promo for you. This is a listener of mine, actually, and she started her own podcast with her friends. Take a listen. Hey guys, Sophie K here. I know what you're thinking, right? Not another true crime podcast. Yep, another true crime podcast. Except I've always been fascinated with the spooky stuff, too. And I couldn't really pick between them. And as they say, that's a real Sophie's Choice. Tune in every Thursday as I share my fascination of true crime and mysteries with my best friends, Mike and Gabby, at Sophie's Choice, Murders and Mysteries podcast, wherever you like to listen. Tell them to listen, Rosie. Go give us a listen. Good girl. Good girl. This podcast is called Sophie's Choice, and it's a really wonderful name. And Sophie has a wonderful voice, so if you're into mysteries, true crime, and other ghostly things, I would highly recommend you giving this podcast a listen. Now, on to today's case. Welcome to episode 92 from the Asian Madness podcast. Hope everyone's doing great, working hard, eating healthy, so on and so forth. I'm not your mom, so I can't tell you what to do, but hopefully you're doing all of that. Anyway, today's episode is probably something many of you have heard of before. And why's that? For one, it's from Japan. In my experience, whenever I tell others what my podcast is about, they tend to ask me about cases in Japan. Which kind of makes sense, because a lot of the fucked up ones are from Japan, as in furuta junko the disappearance of the Miyazawa family, and even Sagawa Ise, the dude who killed and ate a woman but never served any time in prison. Another reason this case might be well known is because it involves a few Caucasian women. And cross-cultural cases tend to get more media attention. Makes sense if you think about it. More countries are reporting it because it involves one of their citizens. So tell me, What creates a well-rounded human being who is guaranteed to do no harm and only make good choices? If you're an older generation Asian parent, you might think, well, as long as I provide for my child with whatever they need, send them to a good school, push them to get good grades, get them accepted into a good university, well, that's about it. Good grades equals good conduct equals a good life equals a good person. Obviously, that's a slight exaggeration, but it's not uncommon to see many parents feel this way. You know the joke. Be a doctor, be a lawyer, you're not a beesian, you're Asian. For today's case, we will explore the story of a man who seemed to be going places, according to his family and academic history, at least. Too bad he was unable to be a kind person and was unable to overcome his own perversions. This is the case of Obara Joji, a.k.a. Kim Sung Jung, or even better known as the man who murdered and raped multiple women, including Carita Ridgway and Lucy Blackman. I'd like to thank listener Sophie for suggesting this case, because it really deserves to be told. Let's begin. In February of 1992, a young Australian woman who worked at a hostess bar went out for dinner with her co-workers and a generous customer. After dinner, she left with the customer, believing that he was going to give her a ride back to her club. While this wouldn't be the last time anyone would see her, it would be the last time anyone saw her alive and conscious. Eight years later, in July of the year 2000, a young British woman who worked at a different hostess bar accepted a paid date with a customer of hers. She made a couple phone calls to her friends during the date, but afterwards, no one ever heard from her again. It was like she vanished into thin air. Who was this customer? Were they the same person? And more importantly, what happened to these two women? Allow me to start by giving a brief overview of Obara Joji's background, and although he is not the one we really care about in this episode, his background is definitely something worth looking into. Don't worry, we will talk about the victims later on. On August 10th, 1952, a baby boy named Kim Sung Jung was born in Osaka, Japan. If you're wondering about his ethnicity, you're correct. His parents were Zainichi Koreans. The term Zainichi literally just means, in Japan. There's a large population of Koreans who immigrated to Japan prior to World War II, and these were considered the Zainichi Koreans, as opposed to those who moved to Japan after the war. In other words, Kim Sung Jung's parents were living in Japan prior to the war, possibly even born there. So, what was the Kim family like? For one thing, they were dirt poor when Kim was born. They struggled a lot, and Kim's father did whatever he had to do to put food on the table for his family. Kim's father was a taxi driver, but it was rumored that he also worked with the local Korean mafia, which is probably a good way to earn some extra cash. As the years went on, the Japanese economy was suddenly in great shape, Kim's father used his savings to open up a pachinko parlor, and business was booming. They were no longer poor. In fact, they became extremely wealthy. They bought tons of land, owned lots of asset, you name it. So, if you're not sure what a pachinko parlor is, a pachinko machine is kind of like an arcade gambling game. It's comparable to slot machines in the West. Very low cost and low stake. While gambling is illegal in Japan, this is allowed as its legality is based off of a loophole. It's a rather mindless game, so you can sit there for hours just feeding money into the machine and letting the game run itself until it's time to put more money in. Anyway, now that the Kim family had an abundance of wealth, what did they want to do with it? Why, of course, invest in their son, get their son the best education money can afford so he can be an outstanding human being. Kim was enrolled in private schools, sent off to extracurricular courses every day, learning English, painting, piano, you name it. He eventually enrolled in a rather prestigious prep school that was known to be affiliated with Keio University, one of the top-ranking private universities in Tokyo. While the family was doing great, it was inevitable that some type of tragedy would strike. Kim's father, who had also been dabbling in illegal business with the mafia, was found murdered in Hong Kong around 1969. His father was the breadwinner of the family. Now what? Well, nothing bad really happened aside from his death. Kim's father had a lot of property and savings under his name. So all of this went to support his widow and his son. Kim continued on with his studies, graduated from Keio University with a degree in not just politics, but also law. He spoke Japanese and was also fluent in English. Like, that's impressive. At this point, Asian parents everywhere are probably side-eyeing their kids like, you can do this too, you know? But hold on. These academic achievements speak nothing about him as a person, his character. After graduating, Kim did two major things. He traveled as much as he could, and then when he returned to Japan, he became a naturalized Japanese citizen, and thus officially changing his name to Obara Joji. I don't really know if changing one's name is required, but I guess it makes sense because it helps him fit in a lot better. Japan is a friendly country, but it is also known to be not so open to outsiders. And by outsiders, I mean people who are not born and bred Japanese people. There are various stories of foreigners, Asians, and Westerners alike who spent years and years living in Japan, speak Japanese fluently, and yet are still treated as outsiders. It also happens to Japanese people who grew up overseas. This is common in mono-ethnic and homogeneous societies, where the majority of the population is from that one country, and anyone outside their ethnicity is seen as an outsider. Well, Kim, whom we will now refer to as Obara, became a Japanese citizen. He began to heavily invest in real estate, of course, using the money he inherited from his father. He was no dummy either as he ended up making millions of dollars. Except, tragedy struck once again. Japan had been doing exceptionally well for years, economically speaking, until that economic bubble went poof in 1991. The years following this event is referred to as the lost decade. During these years, Japan's GDP fell by about $1 salary went down, and prices soared. Obara was heavily impacted by this recession. He had lost so much, and also suddenly. Not only did he lose almost all his money and assets and businesses, he was also somehow in debt. In order to make ends meet and not go completely underwater, he ended up working with a Yakuza group, the Sumiyoshi group, to be exact, doing some sort of money laundering business. I mean... I can't fault the guy. Up to this point, it seemed like he had been making rather sensible choices, and it's not his fault that everything fell apart. While money laundering isn't great, it's a method of survival during harsh times. Deep down, Obara was broke as heck, but on the surface, he managed to maintain a put-together facade, trying to look like he wasn't affected by the economy pretending like everything was fine and dandy. So that's a brief look at the Obara that people knew from a surface level. What was he like as a person on a more personal level? Like I mentioned, at one point he had accumulated a large amount of money and assets. While he could technically walk around like he owned the city, he was actually a very self-conscious and insecure man. Before he changed his name officially to Obara Joji, he had used another Japanese alias during university because he was worried about standing out or not being Japanese enough. Not only that, he was also self-conscious about his looks. For many people, especially non-Asians, it might be hard to tell the difference between Asians from different countries. Hence the really dumb joke, Asians all look the same. Truth is, There are certain traits that can really point to a person's country of origin, like face shape, eye shape, etc. I won't go into detail because it can be a bit hard to explain and I don't want to risk offending any of my people. The point is, Obara Joji knew he wasn't Japanese-looking enough. He went through the whole process of getting plastic surgery, fixing up his eyes and his nose, just so he could avoid looking too Korean, and so he could fit in with the others. Another physical aspect he was self-conscious about was his height. The average height for most East Asian men is around 5'7", or 170 centimeters. Obara, though, he was only 5'5", around 165 centimeters. Honestly, nothing wrong with being short, but I understand how it can impact someone's self-worth and self-esteem. Especially as a man. Obara purchased shoes that had hidden inches in them, and to outsiders who didn't know better, he would definitely look taller and no one would suspect a thing. Lastly, he was rich and he enjoyed being rich. Again, nothing wrong with that. Before the recession, he went around and purchased multiple apartments and expensive, fancy new cars. He wanted to show status wanted others to know he was well off. All in all, I sense Obara was an incredibly insecure individual. Many of us might have negative assumptions about people who are wealthy and flaunt their wealth. They can give us a sense of, I can do anything I want and there's nothing you can do about it. I guess this does describe Obara to some degree. During his years living life as a single eligible bachelor, He had two rather terrible habits. One was drugs, which seemed to have started during his rich boy years, but worsened during his poor boy stage. The second habit was a lot worse. He had developed a rather illegal and immoral hobby. He became obsessed with raping unconscious women he managed to lure to his apartments. This was a dangerous game, not just for the girls but also for him. He bought date rape drugs, chloroform, lots of expensive camera equipment, and after drugging these women, he would then film himself raping them or doing obscene acts. It wasn't just women he was obsessed with, though. He had a strong obsession with western, or rather, white women. This is very interesting and I have to go off on a quick tangent for a bit. There is this weird status thing in some parts of Asia, and I've probably mentioned this before, where if you're dating or seeing someone white, it's almost seen as a higher status symbol. I really hate this view because it's weird and it's basically hating on your own race in a sense, if that makes any sense. Sure, lots of cross cultural dating happens, but I would say most of them are rather organic, where two people click start dating, and it has nothing to do with the other person's race or color. You can't exactly help who you fall in love with, for the most part. But there are some people that exclusively seek out white partners, which is very weird to me. Not only that, they kind of make dating a white person their entire personality. So maybe for Obara, being with a white woman was more exciting, made him feel more important. Maybe walking around with a white woman drew more attention from the public. Who knows? When did this hobby of his begin? Hard to say, but police later on stated that it probably began around the early 90s. Next, we will discuss two of his most well-known victims, one of which helped narrow down the timeline, and the other one helped the police apprehend him, putting an end to his sick games. From Amazon Music, I Hear Fear is a new anthology series of suspenseful stories hosted by Carrie Mulligan. These stories are inspired by true events and real places, so the next sound you hear could be your own scream. In each episode of I Hear Fear, you'll be treated to a new psychological thriller. A forest monster who lures teens into the woods and never lets them return. A line of beauty products that takes the search for youth to dark extremes. And an EDM party that turns deadly when the DJ takes over more than just the dance floor. These might sound like urban legends, but I Hear Fear proves that the scariest stories of all are the ones that are true. I Hear Fear will introduce immersive horror and lead you straight into the heart of darkness. Prepare to be taken on a journey into the unknown. Hey Prime members, listen to the Amazon Music exclusive podcast, I Hear Fear, in the Amazon Music app. Download this app today. Carita Ridgway was a young woman from Australia. She was born in March of 1970 in Perth, Western Australia. As a young girl, She became very interested in the idea of modeling, but as she grew older, she decided that modeling was not her jam. She wanted to pursue acting instead. Except, acting courses in Australia were extremely expensive at the time. Things were tough in the early 90s in many parts of the world due to the recession, and in Australia as well, which started around September of 1990 and lasted approximately a year. When you're living in a recession, it's hard to know when things will start to look up, so Karita, not wanting to waste her youth, decided to move to Japan. Might seem random, like, of all countries, why Japan? According to online sources, Karita had an older sister, Samantha, who had just recently moved to Tokyo to be with her boyfriend. This seemed like a great idea at the time, as she could teach English in Japan, save up, and pursue acting. This was only a short-term plan though, as she did want to return to Australia eventually. She arrived in Japan when she was around 20 or 21, very young and very fascinated with the lifestyle Tokyo had to offer. She began her life there as an English teacher for a while, but let's face it, she was young and honestly very beautiful It was only natural for her to want to earn a better living using whatever means possible. I don't mean this in a bad way either. If someone is beautiful and attractive enough to work in certain fields, either modeling or whatnot, that's great. So she was eventually recruited to join the world of hostess bars. There are technically six areas in Tokyo that are famous for this sort of nightlife. Shinjuku's Kabukicho, Roppongi, Ikebukuro, Ginza, Ueno, and Shibuya. Each area has their own style, so to speak. After a brief search, the internet told me that the most expensive areas are either Roppongi or Ginza. Japanese hostess and host bars are quite interesting. In her case, it's basically a bar where people, mostly men, go to drink, sing karaoke, and whatever... Customers are technically not allowed to touch the women or do anything lewd. And women are there by request and can drink, sing, and have conversations with their patrons. The whole point is to have fun in the company of beautiful women. Seems innocent though, right? Well, if a customer liked a girl a lot, they were allowed to ask them out on dates, but only if the woman agreed to it. Karita joined a hostess bar located in Ginza, and it started out great. Like I said, being a foreigner, especially a white woman in this situation, had its perks. This is where Karida first met Obara. At first, he was an innocent customer, going to the club and requesting her company. Eventually, after the two got closer, he felt like it was time to make a move. On the evening of February 14, 1992, a customer of the club, presumably Obara, invited a bunch of the hostesses out to dine with him at a restaurant, one of them being Karida. So the following events cannot be 100% confirmed, but it is what people believe happened. So after going out for food, Obara presumably offered Karita a ride back to her club. She accepted, and the two left together. While the two were in the car, Obara made his move. He took a heavily chloroform rag and basically smothered her with it. She instantly felt unconscious, and being the creep that he is, he took advantage of her. Except, something went very wrong. You see, he's a depraved guy, but his only intention was to drug her and then let her go, maybe make up some bullshit excuse as to why she passed out. Karita, though, never woke up. He began to panic and wasn't sure what he should do. He then did the oddly sensible thing and took her to the hospital. Obara gave the hospital a fake name and told them that Kurita was unconscious, probably suffering from food poisoning or something. As soon as they admitted her, Obara left and never returned. Sometime in the morning of February 15th, Kurita's sister, Samantha, realized her sister was missing and when she went around asking their roommates, one of them said that she had received a call from a strange man saying that Carita had gone away with friends. Samantha was skeptical, became even more worried, and that's when she received a call from the hospital. They told her her sister was there, and to come immediately, as she wasn't doing so well. Samantha went to the hospital straight away, only to find her sister unresponsive. One question about her sister's condition, doctors and nurses told her that a Japanese man had brought Karita in, telling them she was suffering from food poisoning, and that was it. The man said his name was Nishida Akira, but it turned out to be a fake name, and the only thing that they remembered was that he was Japanese and was an older man. The doctors were also quite puzzled because her condition was not a match to food poisoning and her tests showed that she had contracted a liver infection. After days and days of torture, Carita officially was declared brain dead, and her organs were shutting down one by one. She was finally taken off life support a day or two before she turned 22, and her official cause of death was ruled as hepatitis E, which, to put it simply, is liver failure. This makes sense too, as too much chloroform is known to affect the liver first. Kurita's family was devastated. They wanted to find this mysterious man, who went by the name Nishida, and ask him questions. The Ridgeway family asked the doctors for an autopsy, but they had already declared her cause of death, so they didn't see the point of conducting one. The family went to the police, asking them to open an investigation into Kurita's death and to find the man named Nishida. The police rejected the family's pleas, and many people believe that the refusal to investigate had to do with Karita being a hostess and a foreigner. You see this a lot. When a person is involved in the higher-risk situation, many people tend to believe that they are responsible for their own deaths. If a sex worker is killed, well, she shouldn't have gotten into that, If a drug addict is killed, well, that's too bad. Don't do drugs, kids. Basically, not all lives are equal, and depending on your habits and occupation, your life might not even matter to some people. But this isn't the end of Karita's story. During Karita's stay in the hospital, Samantha began receiving strange phone calls from a man who was supposedly Nishida, who was more than likely Obara. He would stick to the same story every time, explaining that Kurita had some bad seafood and fell unconscious. He did everything he could to save her, but couldn't. It's weird. Why would he keep calling? Why put himself in this situation? If it was all said and done, why contact the family and jeopardize your anonymity? For whatever reason, this Nishida guy finally told the Bridgeway family that he would meet with them. The meeting was arranged, and Nishida showed up, nervous and mumbling the same story, that Karita had food poisoning and he had no idea what happened. He even told Karita's parents that he was not just a customer, but that he doted on Karita, and even had a birthday present prepared for her. Her parents and sister were kind of shocked and skeptical, but they accepted his gifts and an additional 50 million yen under one condition. They had to accept their daughter's death. That's kind of shady, right? At this point, what could they do though? The police wouldn't help, the doctors wouldn't help, so they had no choice but to accept everyone's decision. They took Karita's remains back to Australia and tried to move on with their lives. For the next few years, Obara continued his depraved ways. Living a broke ish life, working with a yakuza, coping with drugs, and often seeking out female companionship. It took many years, but around the late 90s, Obara finally began to get sloppy with his ways and wound up with various police records and visits to jail. He was caught driving under the influence, he was caught taking upskirt photos of women in the bathroom, and was caught not once but twice sexually harassing women in public. This guy was slowly getting himself noticed, and in a way, it's good because it did lead to him being on the police's radar. Getting caught so many times didn't really deter him from his ways either, as he usually got a slap on the wrist and was released pretty quickly. If he had received harsher punishment, maybe Lucy and others after Carita wouldn't have had the misfortune of meeting him. Lucy Jane Blackman was born in September of 1978 in Kent, England. I unfortunately do not have much information on her upbringing, but from what I gathered, she led a pretty normal life with loving parents. When Lucy was around 20 years old, she decided she wanted to become a flight attendant. Lucy was a pretty blonde woman, quite tall, around 5'9", or 175 centimeters. From what I know about this industry, she was probably a perfect candidate for the job. She applied and was accepted into British Airways, and thus began her jet-setting life, flying to different destinations every few days. Lots of my friends had dreams to become a flight attendant at some point in their lives. It's not that it was super glamorous or anything, but the idea of getting free flights and seeing the world was extremely appealing. It's also something a young woman in their early 20s would want, as you're still young and there's so much more out there. Anyway, Lucy worked with a lot of other young women, and it was rumored that keeping up with the lifestyle of flight attendants is not cheap. Many times it comes with needing to buy the most expensive bags, shoes, jewelry, you name it. Maybe Lucy wasn't into expensive things before this job, But I strongly believe that being around those with expensive taste can really affect your buying habits. Lucy supposedly began to overspend, and in no time she had racked up some debt. Nothing major, but enough to bother her a bit. Around May of the year 2000, Lucy decided she needed a change. She wasn't very happy at her job and she wanted a break. Lucy and her friend, a woman named Louise Phillips, talked about their lives and suddenly made the decision to travel to Tokyo, Japan. They wanted to spend some time there. 90 days, to be exact, as those were the visa conditions. Luis's older sister supposedly was living in Japan at the time, which is kind of a weird coincidence that there was some sort of sister involved in both Karita and Lucy's stay in Japan. Anyway, this trip was supposed to be relaxing, kind of like a break from reality, except the two young women were immediately intrigued by this hostess bar situation. You see, Louise's sister had been living in Japan for a few years already and had been working as a hostess during that time. She told the two friends that it was very easy money, and it was a very decent amount of money. Lucy and Louise were fascinated and decided that this was worth a shot. Lucy could not only make enough to pay back what she owed, She could also make extra money to fund future trips around the world, or buy whatever else she wanted. It didn't sound like a bad deal, as all you had to do was sit around, drink, and chat with customers. The no-touching and no-harassment policy made them feel safe. So if this could bring in some extra cash, why not? Despite going through a recession, those who still had money did not hold back when it came to spending especially men, in hostess clubs. Life may be hard, but no need to deprive yourselves, right? Life is short. YOLO. You get the idea. So Lucy pretty much felt the same way. Lucy and Louise ended up joining a hostess club called Casablanca that specialized in foreign women as hostesses, which I imagine is kind of like a themed hostess club. Where men who prefer foreigners go and enjoy the company of these women. There are tons of themed hostess bars like uniform clubs, maid clubs, anything you can think of, they probably have it. It's kind of weird but quite fascinating. She worked for a little less than two months, and it was indeed easy money. Everything was going well for her until she accepted a paid date from a customer, and of course, that man, was Obara Joji. On the afternoon of July 1st of the year 2000, Lucy and Obara went out on a date. Before that took place, Lucy called Louise to tell her about it. Maybe as a safety thing, because that's honestly very smart. Except, Lucy disappears and never makes it home. Louise was slightly concerned, and on the following day, similarly to Karita's sister, she received a phone call from a man named Takagi Akira, explaining that Lucy had decided to go join a religious group and will not be returning home ever again. That sounds hella suspicious, but Louise had no idea how to verify this information, nor did she know who to go to. Lucy was a grown adult. If she really wanted to leave or join a cult, she technically could, but as a friend, or someone who knows her personally, you know things are weird. Louise called up the Blackman family the following day, telling them that Lucy went out on a date two days ago and hadn't been seen since. By now, everyone is worried, sick, and also unsure of what to do. Lucy's family began flying out one by one, arriving in Tokyo. They went to the police and eventually held a press conference on TV, asking the public and the government for help, locating her. For people who did not know Lucy, they were probably thinking, oh, she's a hostess. Oh, she probably left somewhere with her sugar daddy or customer. Big deal. But for those that knew her, they didn't believe she would have run away like that. It just wasn't like her. With the help of the British Foreign Secretary, the then Prime Minister Tony Blair, and the Japanese government, the police began to investigate. TIP hotlines were established, detectives were on the lookout, reward money for information was offered, and lots of expats began to offer assistance to the Blackman family. Times like these people tend to come together, and it's really beautiful. A whole month goes by, and all the tips they've received up to this point have led nowhere, including a letter that was supposedly sent from Lucy telling everyone to leave her alone. I know, sounds fake. Everyone agreed on that. Another tip that came in stated that Lucy could have been a victim of human trafficking in the black market, and while not impossible, there were no further leads. There were a few persons of interest, but none of them really came close enough for police to arrest or label as a solid suspect. It was now September, and everyone was losing hope. But wait, here's something. Remember Obara began getting in trouble with the law starting from the late 90s? Well, turns out there were multiple women, especially hostesses, who went to the police accusing Obara for drugging, raping, and sexually assaulting them. Even more of them began to report Obara after Lucy Blackman's case was made public, None of these reports were considered top priority at the time for some reason, but as police officers dug into potential suspects, this man was starting to look like a good candidate. In October of the year 2000, the police paid Obara a visit. Nothing much happened from this visit, but that didn't mean that the police scratched him out as a suspect. If anything, it was possible he was a liar, so they continued to monitor him closely. Law enforcement began to build a case against Obara Joji, and upon further questioning, Obara finally admitted that yes, he did know Lucy Blackman, but God forbid he had anything to do with her going missing. Do we believe him? Obviously not. The police obtained a search warrant for Obara's residence, and to their shock, they found hundreds of videotapes showing unconscious women being raped and sexually assaulted by Obara, one of them being a blonde woman who could have been Lucy. Truly sickening. Of course, police work involved combing through each and every one of these videos, and that's when they realized this man has probably drugged and raped around 400 women over the years. Aside from the videotapes, as if those weren't bad enough, they found a diary that he kept listing all his victims and what he learned in every encounter. This is where he showed his incel side. Some of the entries read, I cannot do women who are conscious. Women are only good for sex. I will lie on them. I will seek revenge. Revenge on the world. Foreign hostesses are all ugly, not in the sense of appearance, but in their minds, unquote. Looks like Obara had a weird obsession-slash-hatred towards foreign women. Like he desired them physically and sexually, but found them mentally repulsive? The most shocking entry in this quote-unquote conquer play diary of his read, Carita Ridgeway, Too Much Chloroform. Boom. That sealed his fate. Clearly, he knew what had happened to Carita and he was very much responsible. The police also discovered an old cash transfer receipt with the Ridgeway family as the recipient. Remember how he offered them money years ago? Imagine the shock the Ridgeway family experienced when contacted about this, more than eight years after Carita's death. It's like all the hurt and sadness getting dug up again. At this point, there was no reason why the police would think Obara was not involved in Lucy's disappearance though they still needed concrete proof. Obara was charged for the rape of multiple women, the death of Carita Ridgway, and the disappearance of Lucy Blackman. This charge brought on a lot more police to work on this case and eventually in February of 2001 the remains of Lucy Blackman were discovered in a shallow grave only a short distance away from one of Obara's properties. Coincidence? Definitely not. Her body was dismembered into ten pieces and placed in two separate bags. Her head had been encased in concrete. Understandably, her body was too mutilated and decomposed, so cause of death could not be established. The Blackman family was probably relieved to finally know what happened to their daughter, but the sadness and anger definitely trumps that sense of relief. They quickly made arrangements and Lucy's body was flown back to Kent for a funeral, and her ashes were eventually buried in Seven Oaks, Kent. As for Obara, his trial began in April of 2001. His charges remained the same, rape, murder, abduction, and disposal of Lucy's body. This trial was extremely long, so I'm just going to get to the point. After six years, yes, six long years, finally in April of 2007, Obara was sentenced to life in prison for the rape and manslaughter of Carita Ridgeway, and for drugging and raping several other women. Carita's death wasn't labeled a murder, because according to records and evidence, he didn't try to kill her, so it was just a manslaughter charge. But what about Lucy, though? Turns out, that was thrown out because despite her body being found close to his property and him knowing her personally, it was not concrete proof. Later on, Obara told the court that Lucy was mentally ill, she was a drug addict, and that her death was caused by her voluntarily taking drugs. In other words, her death had nothing to do with him. At most, it was an overdose, and he didn't know what to do. Circumstantial evidence. Regardless, a year after the initial sentencing, he was ruled guilty in the Lucy Blackman case for dismembering and abandoning her body. If and only if he's telling the truth about her overdosing on her own, then he's still guilty for how he handled her body afterwards, right? I don't think it's very satisfactory that he wasn't found guilty for her murder, but I guess that's just how the law works at times. Despite the additional guilty charge, his sentencing remained the same, so no death for him yet. His team tried to appeal the sentencing, but of course, they failed. The Blackman family stayed strong during the entire trial but it did take a toll on them in different ways. Financially speaking, it was hard. They basically had to leave their lives in Kent and focus solely on Lucy's case, burning through savings and donations. Lucy's younger sister was so traumatized, she even tried to kill herself. As we know, crime doesn't only affect those directly involved, but also those around them. It's heartbreaking to see this happen. No one expects to go through anything like this. And honestly, no one should. Now, on to the aftermath. One of Obara's friends reportedly felt immensely guilty for what had happened. Not sure if he knew what Obara was up to or if he knew nothing at all, but he ended up offering the Blackman family a large sum of money, which they called condolence fees. Although it felt weird accepting it, Mr. Blackman used it to set up a trust under the family name to go towards promoting safety. As for the men that contacted both Karita's sister and Louise, it was confirmed that it was indeed Obada posing as somebody else, calling them under fake names. Like how gross can you be to do all these terrible things and then try to get involved with the family, acting all innocent and helpful? It's mind-boggling Maybe it was him trying to balance out his evil acts by doing some good. Maybe he enjoyed the attention and acting like a good Samaritan. I received a life sentence, but technically speaking, he would be able to apply for parole once he served 20 years. I doubt he'll ever be free though, so let's cross our fingers. As for the police, you bet they were heavily criticized for their lack of police work, even when multiple women came forward with accusations of rape. It's true, Lucy was working illegally as a hostess in Japan. But a crime is a crime. You want to charge her for working illegally? Sure, but I'm pretty sure a disappearance and a murder case is more important than that. How about you find her first and work out the rest later? Oh wait, too late. Despite not getting charged for Lucy's murder, it was surmised that Obara probably offered her a drink, and she possibly died from that. So there you have it, the human monster named Obara Joji. How do you feel about this case? Are you satisfied with how it was handled? Do you think they could have done things differently? It's a little too late now, but what we can do is change how we proceed with such situations. Police shouldn't dismiss a case just because of a person's profession or habits. Under the law, everyone should be equally protected. It could have happened to anyone as well. And I highly doubt Lucy's visa status played a role in her getting murdered. Traveling can be fun, exciting, relaxing, but always be aware of danger. Sometimes you feel safe, but are we ever really safe? Your spouse can kill you, your family members can harm you, and your friends can betray you. As for strangers, anything can happen. I'm not telling you to go through life not trusting anyone and be a hermit, but just be aware. Like I mentioned, this case is probably well known to some of you as many other podcasts have covered it before, including the critically acclaimed Case File and Red Handed. Thank you for giving my podcast a chance, though. It was a long one, and hopefully I came across as respectful to the Blackmans, the Ridgeways, and the countless other women that fell victim to Obara. May he rot in his cell, get sick a lot, and feel shitty about himself. As for the rest of you, please take care, stay safe, and be very aware. Till next time. Thank you for tuning in to the Asian Madness Podcast. If you enjoyed my content, please rate and review me on iTunes. If you would like to get in touch with me, you can find me on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter, or email me at asianmadnesspod at gmail.com.